I guess one of the shorter readings I've done, huh? I like it. I like it. Actually, I meant you to read the whole book of Titus. Um, well, good morning to everybody. I am super grateful for your prayers. Uh, I feel a lot better. I still have a cough, so if like hack up a lung, you know why. I'm sorry. Um, the irony for me in this kind of season was the first sermon that I gave for the year was largely about rest and trust and all of those things. And being sick, I think uh, without an exaggeration, I had at least 30 people say to me, rest. I was like, okay, God, I get it. I understand. When I was talking back and forth with David, he was like, don't worry about anything. I got it. And I know he did, and he did an excellent job, so thank you again for that. Um, so one of the things that I did while resting, other than watching a lot of sports, because there was some good football on, is I started reading again. And uh, it's been a couple years since I've just been able to read for fun. I don't know what that looks like sometimes in my life. I'm like always reading for school, and now I don't have to. And so um, I was trying to decide what book I was going to read, and my aunt, years and years and years ago, she bought me a C.S. Lewis collection. Um, and this is it. I mean, you can tell it's, it's a few years old, right? Um, so I just picked it up again. I was like, I'm going to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. How many of you have read C.S. Lewis and kind of familiar with it? Because I'm going to try and decide what I'm going to unpack or not. You can put it up there just as an example. But you know how sometimes when you read or you watch something, that you're familiar with, but it hits you in a whole new way. Have you ever had that happen before? Like, I don't know how many times I've read this book. Countless times. But as I was reading it, uh, there were some things that hit me in ways that were just far more intrusive in my thinking than I anticipated. Um, to kind of give some background to it, for those of you that aren't familiar with this book, is that it's basically just a fantasy series and it really sets place in an alternate universe. Um, and where this, this story picks up, there's a lot of arguments about what the first book is in the series, um, but I read this one first, is where the, the story picks up is it's during a war, um, and these children are uh, sent away for safekeeping uh, because of the bombing in England and all of that. And so they're um, being cared for in a home and there is a wardrobe that leads them to this alternate universe. And Lucy, the youngest, she's the first one that goes. And then the next one that goes is, is uh, the young man, Edmund. He's the youngest brother. And that's where I picked up in the story, and that's where it hit me in a way that I've never really been hit before. Because um, when I was reading the story, basically when they go into this wardrobe, and for those of you who read this, you know, it's, it's winter forever without Christmas. That's a repeated line, right? Just winter without, forever without, it's cold and it's bitter and it's broken. And all of a sudden, like Lucy goes in and she experiences it and then she comes back. But Edmund, he hears about it, he goes into it, and his experience is completely different than Lucy's experience. As he meets one of the main characters, the White Witch, who's the queen. And so he encounters her in this cold place, this winter without Christmas, and she's really nice to him, and she's like, come sit by me. So he does. Are you cold, little boy? Yes. So she provides him a drink, and it's the most delicious drink that he's ever had. Um, and then 
He's hungry. Are you hungry? Yes. And so she makes uh, Turkish delight. Do you all know what Turkish delight is? I have a picture of it, so that way you can see. It's, it's a type of candy from Turkey, right? And the story says that um, he starts eating it, right? And it's this big tin, this box. And he's eating it, and he's eating it, and he's eating it, and the next thing you know, the entire thing's gone, just like that. And it was really interesting to me because here's this contrast between this cold and dark and this broken place, and there's this thing that he's searching for, like to feel warm, right? So she gives him the drink, and he's hungry, so she meets that need, but over time, as he starts consuming this Turkish delight, suddenly there's this transformation where the thing that he's consuming starts to consume him, and he can't get enough of it. And so when he finishes it, all he can think about is, I need more Turkish delight. I need more Turkish delight. I need more Turkish delight. And if you're a candy person like me, I can completely understand. I'm like, yes, I get it, Edmund. I need more Turkish delight. And he just eats, and, he, and that's all he can think about. And that's all he, she's like, well, you know, pump the brakes. I'll get you some more Turkish delight when you get your brothers and sisters here, right? Because that's all he, there was that transformation from consuming to being consumed. And I thought, that's so typical of this world. I, this was the reflection that I had. Tell them to put it up for me. It's much like Narnia, which is where this set, sets place, is that we, we as, a, as the body of Christ, okay, we, live in a world that holds beauty and abounding love. Why? Because we know about renewal. We know about hope. Why? Because of Jesus. But the reality is also that we're in a world that is cold and broken and upended. It's not fully redeemed, even though redemption is here. And if you look around us, you can see that there is coldness and there is brokenness, and it's upended. And so there's this kind of natural inclination in life that when we feel this way, because this is a point of tension, isn't it? Right? Like, I know that there's love, and I know that there's goodness, and I know that there's hope because Jesus but then trying to reconcile the coldness and the brokenness and the disorientation. And we have to hold those two things together. And it provokes questions for us. I, I put These are the questions that I had. Um, who is God in all of this? And then who are we? And how are we meant to live? Now, I'm not going to make you answer those questions, so don't worry. But I want you to hold that in your mind. It is because maybe, yeah, you feel super hopeful. You can look to Jesus and you can feel good, and you're like, yes, love and hope. God's breaking through. Um, but maybe your neighbor isn't. Maybe your coworker isn't. Maybe you aren't. And I'm here to say that's why this is so important, is because we all need to experience the love that's spoken about in Scripture about Jesus. But I think these questions are critical. Who is God in all of this? Who are we? And how are we meant to live? Because the reality is, is that this world can consume us. It's like that Turkish delight. Like we're trying to find something that makes us feel better. Have you had those moments where you're like, you're looking and you're searching. You're like, I feel cold. What will make me feel warm? I feel hungry. What will meet my hunger? And so we search and we search and then we get consumed. But Jesus sends a different way. He reorients all of that. So hold on to these questions. I want to bring some context 
to the, this letter to Titus. Uh, I didn't choose it because my son's name is Titus, uh, but I, I think this is so beautiful. Um, so Titus is receiving this letter from Paul, and Titus is, he's a church planter, um, and he's being invited into leadership in a specific place. I put a map up um, so you could have some context of where uh, this is being received. Okay, so uh, this is Paul's third missionary journey, um, and you see this island here, Crete. That's where Titus is. So this is a letter to the Cretans, or the Cretans, actually, is what, <laughs> what it is. Um, and, and Paul is writing this letter, and it's being received in Crete. Um, and some things that are important to know about Crete. Um, number one, it is an island. And so during Roman rule, they were one of the last strongholds in history against the Roman Empire. Like when everything else was collapsing, right? All these cities and towns were falling apart. Crete was like, nah, we're good. <laughs> we're mighty. We're powerful. And so um, eventually Roman leadership and moved in, and they conquered Crete, and, but they were still a proud people. And part of the reason why they were proud is because there was this mythology that the Greek god Zeus was born on Crete and died in Crete. Now, if you know, like, the hierarchy of Greek gods, Zeus is number one, right? So as a, as a Cretan, to say that this is the birthplace of Zeus, have you ever been around a proud person, right, when they, like, puff out their chest? That is a Cretan. They're just like, we are Crete, period. And so there's a lot of pride in the culture. There's a lot of arrogance in the culture. And actually what, what we get to, to see is, I don't know, it's, it's, fallen out of, uh, uh, it's fallen out of our culture, but it used to be if you called somebody a Cretan, that was not <laughs> very nice, right? We don't do that as much in culture anymore. But that's where it comes from, is because Cretans were considered to be liars. It was like, obviously, Zeus wasn't born on Crete, you fools, right? Like, you're liars. And that was the culture around them. So Crete and this island, they were other people. They were, they were different people than the society around them. Interestingly, another interesting fact, is that compared to every other place in the Roman Empire, women had a lot of freedom. No other place in the Roman Empire had the freedom that Cretan women had. And so it's just a very different sort of culture where they're worshiping Zeus, they're worshiping this Roman Empire. It's just this back and forth tension. And Titus is responsible to help the church become the church in the midst of that. So here's this culture that is cold and broken and upended. I mean, they're a conquered people. There's this pride, there's this freedom. They were a very free people, a very kind of flowing, we're going to do what we're going to do. Very similar to Edmund. Let's just eat some Turkish delight, right? And so Titus is being encouraged by Paul because have you ever been in a space where you just feel different? I mean, I know I have. Like, I know that my desires and my heart are different. Maybe some good things and maybe some bad things too. But there's something different. And then when I'm surrounded by things, 
that push against that, it's really disorienting and disruptive. And there's, again, this tension. I know this hope and I know this love, but what does it mean to live in a world like this? And so what ended up happening is that a lot of the, the early leaders in the Cretan church, they were kind of like, well, let's just straddle the fence. We'll be super Cretan and kind of Christian. So it's like they started doing some false teaching, and they started to kind of assimilate to their cultural aspects rather than just, this is what it means to be a Jesus follower. And so they were kind of falling apart. They didn't know. So there was a lot of lying. And again, this is why Paul is saying there's a lot of lying. Even your own poets, your own prophets say, these are who you are. And it's a, it's a, it's a tension. Uh, just to give you an idea how society viewed them, verse 12 in chapter 1 says, it was one of them, their very own prophet, who said, Cretan are always liars, vicious brutes, lazy gluttons. Glowing resume, right? Um, and then Paul follows it with, that testimony is true. <laughs> you are that way. Can you imagine receiving that, right? Um, so Titus is being encouraged because he is responsible for helping find elders and leaders and people to reorient their lives around the way of Jesus. And I'm sure this is a letter of trust, but also of encouragement because he's discouraged. And he's also, Paul, unabashedly saying, this, the, this way of life that's happening in Crete is not okay. It's just not okay. It's going to be easy for people to assimilate to that way of life, but it's not okay. And he doesn't pull punches about that. But this is what I love. So we get into chapter 2. Uh, the heading in our Red Bibles here says, Teach Sound Doctrine. So one of the things that he's doing is he's saying, this is what's going on in your context. Let me show you a little bit about what this might look like in a different way. And one of the places that he would start with, in many of his letters to different people, is in the home. Right? Because where do we spend the majority of our time? Either at work or at home. And for many people in this culture and society, work and home kind of were mixed together. So where would a natural place to be like, let's look at this differently, would be in the home. And so this is considered to be the household code. And he talks about what men should look like, what women should look like. And just to be clear, when you read it back, I feel like this is important to say, this is not about the subjugation of women. Like I said, these women were more free than any other woman in Roman society. So he's saying, like, this is going to be hard for you because you're so used to freedom. You're so used to being able to do whatever you want to do because that's cultural and that's normal. But there's something different that's afoot. And it's the same for the men. So it's not like women have to do this, but men don't. He's trying to bring... And, and another point of tension is, um, and I want to be very clear about this, this is not in verse 9 in chapter 2. He talks about slavery and what it means to be a slave. The reality is, is that Paul and Titus don't have to be okay with slavery, and they weren't. If you look throughout Scripture, they weren't okay with it. But they were saying, the reality is, I can't do anything about your, your status in society. But what I can do is help you walk through what it means to be a Jesus follower as a slave. Does that make sense? And that's really important to distinguish. He's not accepting slavery. He's saying, this is what it means to be in your situation and to be countercultural in this cold and broken and upended world. So, 
Saying all of that, where am I going with it? Verse 11. Um, I, I said, um, I, I, I'll give me one more click. So Paul and Titus, because so Paul is encouraging Titus and Titus is encouraging the Cretan church. Paul and Titus are proposing a different way of life. I'm saying to you, I am proposing a different way of life. It's difficult and abnormal to our previous experience of culture, that kind of life, that sort of life. It's different. Like um, the first example that comes to my mind, um, if you don't know how to dance and you're put in a situation where you have to dance, how does that feel? Like you just love those wedding moments when you're like, oh, gosh, I do not want to do this, right? I just want to be here. Yeah, cool, my, my drink, right? I mean, I like to dance, so that's not me. But point being is it's disruptive. It's like, what do I do? It's abnormal to my previous experience, abnormal to even what I like or would normally do, but there's a different way. And so whether, uh, one more, one of these questions, one more click. So these questions that I asked before, the question, these are the questions that the Cretans were asking. We should be asking, we are asking these same questions, right? Like, we should be asking, who is God in all of this? Do you ever have those moments when you're going throughout your day and you're like, man, who are you, God? Like, what are you up to? Who are we in this? Like, what am I supposed to even do with this? And then, like, if we can even get through one or two, how are we meant to live fully into that? Have you ever been discouraged by these questions? I know I have. And part of the reason why is because it's so easy, just like eating that Turkish delight or that thing that can consume us, it's so easy to fall into the trap of just doing stuff to feel better about myself. It is so easy. It's so easy to fall into this trap of, I'll just push it off till tomorrow because I'm tired. It's easy. And Paul's not admonishing them. Instead, he does something that's just so extraordinary to me. This is where verse 11 comes in. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. So he says, look, this is how life can look in Christ. And you get discouraged and you get frustrated and you're like, is it even worth it? And then all of a sudden, Paul says, but then the grace of God appeared. And who is the grace of God? It's Jesus. And sometimes it's so easy to forget that. I put this up because this is something I put in your bulletins because I'm hoping you'll take, take it uh, home with you and wrestle with it. Um, go ahead, Tom. You can put it up there. I put it up here in case you didn't have a bulletin either. I'll just read it. It says, In the coming of Christ... We have a clear moment in time when we can look to where God broke into our brokenness to save us and make us whole. We can look to a specific time in history where Jesus came, where God came into the midst of the cold and the brokenness and the pain, and he came alive to make us whole. And that has to change everything. I mean, it does change everything. But like when we're asking these questions, who is God? Who are we? How are we meant to live? And we're walking through this discouragement. We can always look back and say, you broke into this brokenness. 
and brought wholeness. So consider whatever broken situation or relationship that you're going through right now. What I get, what the privilege I get to declare to you is that in the midst of that brokenness and that difficulty, I can declare to you Christ broke into that to make it whole. Isn't that crazy? And that reorients things because it's not just about being consumed. It's about consuming life for flourishing. And that's what's happening in this text is... um, Paul is telling Titus that life doesn't have to be this way. And that a hope just breaks in. Here I am being weepy again. Um, And so this, yeah, I know, I'm sorry, Brett. Um, So when when Jesus breaks in and he's vulnerable and he's, he's willing to be reliant and then trust and then be nourished and fed, and then he grows, and he says, this is what wholeness looks like, and he goes out and he proclaims over and over again, this is what life looks like forever, forever. And because of that, and and if you go to verse 12, it says training us, and there's some translations that says teaching us, commanding us. I mean, it depends on which translation. But it's not... This is the crazy part for me. It's not me, like as a pastor, for example, teaching you about God's word. What teaches us towards a different life? Grace, Jesus. And I think sometimes it's really easy to overcomplicate that. Like, I'm like, okay, I want a different life. So, like, I should read scripture and I should pray and I should and I should and I should and I should and I should. And then I get weary. And Paul just emphasizes over and over again the grace of God breaking through. And for the Cretans, that's a big deal because they believed in Zeus and they worshiped Zeus, but Zeus died and he didn't bring them salvation because if he brought them salvation, people wouldn't look to them as liars and gluttons. And... But he's pointing out this God that broke in from above with power and authority brings new life. And because of that, that teaches a way of life to you. And what does that look like? It, it looks like the, the strength and ability to say no to things that are going to consume us. I mean, that's what he's saying when he's saying, training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions. It's not like, oh, you're a sinner, repent, repent, repent. It's giving you the ability through grace to say no to the things that will destroy you, that will destroy me. And then he goes on to say, and in the present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly. It's the grace of God that leads us and teaches us and trains us into these things. And sometimes we do it in reverse. So we're like, if I do these things, then I'll understand the grace of God. If I do these things, then I will understand the love of God. And he's saying, I love you. I give you grace. What does that do to your life? So he's answering that question. This is who I am. I love you. I'm breaking into your brokenness, bringing you wholeness. Who, are, who am I as a result of that? I'm a beloved son, me, beloved daughters in this space as well. That's who I am. That's who you are. And because of that, we have this loving Father that teaches us a new way of life. To say no to the things that are going to consume us. In my household right now, I am regretting buying a Nintendo Switch. 
And I'm constantly saying no because I can see how easy it is for him, my son, to be consumed by it. It is so easy. But we all have our things. I'm not judging him. We all have our things that can consume us. And it's difficult to say no to those things. That's why Paul is saying to Titus, it's about self-control. But you're not going to get to self-control by creating these perfect rhythms because how many of you have made a New Year's resolution in your life (laughs) and broke it like a couple weeks later? So he's saying self-control comes through the reorientation of knowing our identity. That's how, what reorients all of us. So he continues and says, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I appreciate that Paul includes this in the text because to renounce things that will consume you is hard. Like I mentioned before, I love candy. I can relate to Edmund. And especially being sick, I'm like, they say sugar is not good for you. I'm like, oh, but like a bag of Skittles won't kill me, right? <laughs> but it, it, it just, I don't know. It's, been, it's in a simple way that's been hard to say no. It's been hard. It's not easy. And so in the midst of that, in the midst of living a self-controlled, upright, and godly life, we see this reminder of hope. Like Jesus came, and he's coming again. Jesus came and he's coming again. And that's not like, ooh, we need to be scared. It's that he keeps his promises. He's faithful and true. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. His love is real. He it is who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. Again, I appreciate that Paul's encouraging Titus with that because newsflash, we're all going to fail. We're all going to sin. And so it, again, reorders us. There's hope. There's renewal. It's Jesus. Verse 15. Now, when Paul is writing this to Titus, he's saying declare these things. And he's saying for all the things that he said before, declare these things. Exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one look down on you. Now, that's directly to Titus. Let no one look down on you. But I get to say to all of us today, let no one look down on you for living a life that's reoriented around the life of Christ, the hope of Christ, the love of Christ. Don't let anybody look down on you when you will ultimately stumble in that journey, when you will, quote, unquote, fail, because that's what we think. Don't let anybody look down on you when you have to restart again and again and again and again. Because what Paul is emphasizing is that the grace of God, we can look to this point in time where Jesus broke through and made it all whole again. Um, I wanted to end with this, which is going back to the statement, declare these things. My encouragement for all of us, is that maybe, you can put that actually back up, Tom. Um, I think this needs to be declared in our lives more frequently. Declare these things. We have a clear moment in time where God broke into our brokenness to save us and make us whole. We are redeemed. We are whole people. And that needs to be declared over and over and over again. I can guarantee you, you will get discouraged this week. 
this. I can guarantee you will get angry and frustrated this week, this. I can guarantee you will feel rejected at some point or disoriented or disrupted, this. He broke into it to make us whole. And so you get to, you get to and I get to declare this as truth. We are made whole in Christ. This situation or this culture or these things that we're walking through, they don't have the last word. Granted, I don't know how this is all going to play out. I have no idea. But I do know this. And that's why we get to declare it. It doesn't mean that we're going to get the things that we want or the answers that we're hoping for or anticipating or even falsely expecting. But we still get to declare this and see God break through in that. Now, just in a joking way, many of us have colds this morning. I've been declaring this over my cough. I'm like, come on, just make me whole for crying out loud, right? Um, but sometimes, and this is something in a, one of my friends from Spain encouraged me with this morning because I was really struggling with how I was going to end this. She reminded me from this text in Isaiah that talks about waiting upon the Lord. You know, like when you've been sick for a really long time and it takes time to heal and it takes time to live a new life and it takes time to feel different about your situation and your circumstances. There's a time element in this to see what wholeness looks like. And I don't want us to lose sight of that. It takes time. But the beauty of that is just as Paul wrote this letter to Titus in the context of a body of people, we are a body of people that get to encourage one another and declare these, declare these things to one another when we can't declare it ourselves. I can say over the last year, there were so many of you that did this for me. And it's an honor that I get to do this for you. And that's what we need each other for is to remind each other, declare these things because we won't look down on each other, because this is a safe place to just be us. Let me, uh, let me pray. Um, God, I thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. I thank you that um, you make all things new. And I know these, this, uh, already this year, you know, I talked about rest and trust, and then David talked about worry and fear and stress, and these are real things. It's like trying to navigate what it means to live in this world, but be beloved sons and daughters. And so, God, thank you that in discouragement, or just trying to, not even discouragement, but just trying to figure it all out, what it means, who you are, what, it, what is that for our lives, um, is that we can look to you, Jesus, and find hope. That we can look to the cross and your death, and we can find hope. When we look to your resurrection, we can say, yes, death does not have the last word, even if it's something that we experience as part of our lives. So God, um, I think wholeheartedly we can declare and praise you. Thank you. Um, thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves. Thank you that you know our hearts and our minds better than, than we know it. And uh, thank you that you lead us towards ways and paths of righteousness and I pray for all of us the strength to be patient as we see what wholeness looks like um, because it is discouraging at times to live a countercultural life in this world. Um, help us as a body of believers and followers of you, Jesus, um, to encourage one another and declare these things. And we pray this in your name. Amen.